13. We'll be in that whole chapter tonight. So if you have a Bible uh, that you can follow along in, I think you'll profit by following the verses that we're going to look at little by little. We're in a series on Wednesday nights during the summertime. We're calling it Where Saints Have Trod. And these messages are designed to take us geographically uh, through the Bible lens and note some specific places along the way where something important happened. And uh, it'll, hopefully, now this is my design, my, my, my selfish desire is as we do this and we show a few maps on the screen, it's to help us sneak in some geography on you. Because I, I find that a lot of people uh, have been saved for years and years and they really don't, they couldn't take their finger and put it on a map of Israel and show you where approximately where Jerusalem is or where the Sea of Galilee or where the Dead Sea is or where uh, a town like Bethel is that we're going to talk about tonight. We've given the title uh, Blunders at Bethel for the message tonight. And uh, these messages help, helpfully, hopefully, will not just help us with the geography, but maybe we'll gain some spiritual insight. And that's what we really need. The geography uh, is helpful and answers a lot of questions and saves us a little time and makes us able to picture where these things happened. But the spiritual lessons that are in there are the real treasure. And so we, uh, we find that when we study the Bible effectively, and you want to study the Bible effectively, don't you? Do you ever read through a section of Scripture, or maybe a whole book of the, of the Bible, and you just kind of went on auto, autopilot, and when you got through to the other end of it, you thought, I wonder what that said. <laughs> there, when we study the Bible, we are to glean some things from it that will help us. And when we study it effectively, we will note some of those things like geographical features on the map and of the land of the Bible. And then we'll learn a little bit of history along the way. My wife says, don't spend too much time on the history. Get down to the nitty-gritty. You know? But I, I think learning a little bit of the history is how we gain the spiritual lessons because all of these things in the Bible happened at a point in history. you agree with that? I mean, you can read history books written by men uh, without the hand of God on it. And, uh, and you know today a lot of history books have been revised, changed, and are presented from a point of view depending on the political and cultural ideology of the person who wrote it, and they change. But the Bible is a history that is set in stone, and it's not going to change. It's going to stay the same. And so we'll gain some of that geographical significance, but we hope to tie it all together at the end with a spiritual application. We want to know more about the Lord, more of Jesus would I know. And Brother Lloyd mentioned this a little while ago. It's on a little plate on our pulpit up here. It says, Sir, we would see Jesus. And, and at the bottom of all of it, the foundation of everything, we hope to see Jesus in our messages. We take the Bible literally, unless there's a good reason where it's obvious that there's some sort of a illustrative or symbolic meaning, which not near as much as people think there are. And I mean, there's places like where Jesus says, I am the door. Obviously, he doesn't mean he's a slab of wood with a doorknob on it. He means he's the entrance, the entryway into heaven. Jesus said, I am the door. 
And he says, I'm a shepherd. Now, he's not a, he's not a shepherd-looking dog, or he's not a shepherd with a staff out there herding the sheep. But he is a shepherd of our soul. And he guides us when we allow him to be in charge of our lives. He guides us like a shepherd would sheep. And so aside from those few places where the Bible has uh, a little bit of uh, symbolism, it is not a mystical book like the allegorists would say that everything you read in the Bible has a deeper, more spiritual meaning. You know, there's something secret under there. The only problem with that is if we don't take the Bible literally, then whoever's doing the preaching, whoever's doing the interpreting, whoever's doing the writing, they can make it mean anything they want it to mean. And so we have to read it and interpret it from a literal, grammatical standpoint. We let the language mean just what it says. We don't assign new definitions to it like they do in our culture and in politics. We just let it be grammatically and historically correct as it stands. Well, our purpose tonight is to consider a section of Scripture, all of chapter 13, and see something that I believe will be not only interesting, but will be very helpful to you in a spiritual way. Let's, let's read uh, three verses. Well, let's read two verses. Beginning in chapter, uh, 1 Kings chapter 13, 1 Kings chapter 13 and verse number 1. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar, the man of God did. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places these idol worshipers is what he's talking about. The priests, like the prophets of Baal. So, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. Father, I pray that you'd bless us, give us clarity of thought. Lord, help us to have direction, unction, anointing by the Holy Spirit of God that we might say those things that would be helpful and to forget those things that would not be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we have a few pictures and maps to get the setting visual and much of what we learn is visual, at least begins with visual. And in our first map, uh, you remember how the, the, the nation so far of Israel has had three kings up to this point. Uh, they had Saul. He turned out to be a dud. And they had King David. He was a great king. He, he fought and secured the borders of Israel. And upon his death, then Solomon, his son, reigned. And he expanded the kingdom and enriched the kingdom. Enriched himself a little bit along the way, too. And, and after Solomon, what happened? Then... Rehoboam, his son, turned out to be a little bit of a jerk. And Jeroboam took the northern, took ten tribes to the northern part, and they called that Israel. And Rehoboam 
stayed down in Jerusalem and Judah, the red portion of our map. And so the southern kingdom was for a long time more of a godly kingdom and had some godly kings. And the northern kingdom of Israel, they had one after another of evil, evil kings. And, and you'll find, as we're talking about Jeroboam tonight, Jeroboam is the, is the one who is the king of northern Israel northern half of the country, Israel, and every and a lot of places in the Bible, when you read through it, and it's talking about another evil king, it'll say, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, as Jeroboam did. Wouldn't you love to be an example like that? Every time somebody thinks something evil and bad, they say, oh, he's just like him, just like Jeroboam. So we've got a divided kingdom, and after this kingdom divided and Jeroboam takes 10 of the tribes to the north, uh, it becomes a very contentious situation between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the temple that Solomon built is in Jerusalem, just over the border into the southern part of the country. And since Jeroboam has all of the ten tribes above in the northern kingdom. He really doesn't want his people going down to the temple in Jerusalem because if they go down there, he's afraid he might not get them back because the northern kingdom is an evil place. And generally, good people want to migrate into a place where they can raise their kids and have some godly influence. Are you listening? Parents, you want your kids to be in a godly place where you can raise them apart from as much of the worldliness and evil as possible. That's why it's important who your kids' friends are. And it's important where they go to school. And it's important where they attend church. And it's important who they hang out with. And so Jeroboam was afraid that the northern tribes would go down to Jerusalem and like it and say, hey, man, they got better preaching down here. <laughs> These people seem like they want to live for the Lord more down here, so maybe we want to stay. He's afraid they'll move away, you know, and they'll flee like people are fleeing New York City and San Francisco and places like that. And so he set up down there at Bethel, you see it, down in the southern part, just across the border from Jerusalem in the northern state of Israel is Bethel. What Jeroboam did, he set up a golden calf altar at Bethel. And then all the way up at the end, see up at the very tippy top of the end at Dan, he set up another one up there. And so he said to the people in Israel, you, can, uh, you don't have to go down to Jerusalem to worship. We're, we're just as religious as they are. And so if you live in the southern part of Israel, you can go to Bethel and worship the altar there. And if you live closer to the northern part of Israel, you can go up to Dan and worship at that altar. Well, this is a representation of the king, Jeroboam. And where our setting is that he's at Bethel. He's at Bethel down at the southern end of his kingdom. And he's offering incense on the, on the idol's altar. And God has sent or is sending prophets from the southern kingdom that's more godly. God is sending prophets from down there to cry against the altars of the idols. And the man that we're going to look at tonight, he just called the man of God. He doesn't have a name in the Bible. I mean, I'm sure he had one, but God didn't give it to us. 
He's just called the man of God. And you've got three main actors, three main characters in our story that covers all of chapter 13. You've got the one that's called the man of God. And then you've got the, the old prophet. His name is not given either. Je- the man of God, the old prophet, and Jeroboam. Those are the three main actors in this story. And so, <laughs> as we progress through the story, we'll find that the old prophet connects up with who I assume is a younger prophet, since the Bible calls the, the, the one the old prophet and the other one the man of God. I would assume that the man of God is probably a younger man, or he wouldn't have called the other one the old prophet. Sometimes I take a little offense to being called the old prophet. <laughs> but this is what we have. This is our setting. And this man of God is sent from Judah by God, He's given instructions to go cry against this altar at Bethel that Jeroboam's involved in. So we call it the blunders of Bethel because there's some bad stuff that's going to take place here. Some tragic things that are going to take place. Some heartbreaking things. Some confusing things. And we're going to see some of these things that happen. Let's look first at God's specific instructions. God gives us instruction, does He not? He gave this man instructions, the man of God. Look, we read the first three verses, and now let's skip on down to verse number 9. We're going to get more uh, of the instructions that God gave this man of God. Are you with me? Nobody's getting sleepy, are you? Don't don't check out on me yet. Uh, Verse number 9. Here's the man of God speaking. He says, For it, for so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. So here's what, here's what God said to the man of God. He said, I want you to go up to Bethel. And we don't know what part of Judah he came from. It just says he came from Judah. So it could have been from any of the cities of the south. But he comes up to Bethel, and he says, I want you to go up there, and and you're going to preach. I mean, you're going to get right up against this altar, this idol altar, and old old king himself is going to be there, and you're going to preach. Thanks a lot, Lord. And the Lord says, not only are you going to preach, you're going to prophesy against that altar, but while you're there, don't take a bite of food. From nobody. And don't you take a drink of water from nobody. And don't you hang around there. You get out as quick as you can. After you preach the message, you hit the trail. And don't even go back by the way you came in. You go out a different way and return home. He had specific instructions. The Bible is an instruction book. I think sometimes we Christians, or many Christians at least, think they can just make up their own instructions and live life according to their own desires, their own emotions. Remember that from last week? Emotions? We just think we can live by our own emotions. But the Bible is a book of instructions and we don't have the right to alter them. And this old prophet didn't either. He was given instructions about his journey to Bethel and we learn learn our first lesson right here that instructions are given... For a reason. Sometimes people say, well, I don't, 
I know that's what the Bible says, but I don't understand that, so I'm not going to do it. It don't matter if you understand it or not. If the Bible says do it, you're supposed to do it. And everybody said, <laughs> the Bible says do it, you just do it. You don't have to know why. You don't. Now, a lot of times God will tell you why, but you don't have to know. You just, what are you supposed to do when God gives you instructions? Just do it. Obey. That's lesson number one that we're getting tonight. <laughs> now, there's a, there's a second part we want to get, the king's disobedience. In verse number uh, four, go back with me to verse four. Now, we're going to focus on Jeroboam for a little bit. And it came to pass, watch this, and it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God. Now, stop right there just for a minute. Jeroboam's there at his altar. He's offering incense. And here comes this backwoods preacher. And he gets up there right beside old King Jeroboam. And he cries out. What did he cry out? Well, if you go back to verse 3, it says, Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. God said, I'm going to bust up your altar, Jeroboam. <laughs> and so this, this man of God stands there and tells him that. And so in verse 4 it says, And it came to pass when Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he had cried against the altar at Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. And his hand which he put forth against him dried up so that he could not pull it again to himself. Can you put yourself in that place just for a little bit? You're, you're King Jeroboam and, and uh, the man of God preaching stuff you don't like at all. I mean, this is really getting under your skin. And so Jeroboam says to his men, grab him. And he's trying to pull his hand back. And his hand won't come back. That old pointed finger just still out there. Man, this is getting serious. I can't pull my... I don't know whether God made him have a stroke right there. Just locked up his muscles. Whatever it was, it was miraculous though. And so the king's just got his arm stuck out there and he looks around probably at his... This is reading between the lines. He looks around at his guards and says, Oh, never, never mind. <laughs> Hold on a minute. And fear grips his heart. Remember, he's living in gross disobedience himself to God. He has set up a, an idol altar, and the, the real man of God from the southern kingdoms up there preaching gets that altar. And Jeroboam knows he's in trouble. And he calls, he doesn't call this the Lord or my Lord, he says, thy God. <laughs> Your God. <laughs> Call upon him. Let's read it there and see, see what it says. <clears throat> Verse number five. The altar also was rent. It means it was ripped open, busted, and the ashes poured out according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again. And he said, man, I'm in trouble. Pray for me, would you? I wonder why he didn't just talk to the Lord himself. I wonder why he just didn't believe that the Lord had the power to be God instead of the idols who had never done nothing. And so he says, pray for me. And the man of God besought the Lord, 
and the king's hand was restored to him again, and it became as it was before. His arms locked out there. The man of God prays and said, Lord, he's wanting to be like he was before. The Lord said, okay, I'll do it. So he was able to pull his hand back in again. <laughs> oh, boy, I felt good. He was in trouble. He knew he was in trouble. When I was coming up out of the uh, valley at Batesville towards Pleasant Plains a few years ago, my wife was eating M&M's, pe- pe- uh, M&M, peanut M&M's. You ever eat those? And she's eating those things, and, and I'd had my stroke a, a year or two before, and my throat's still not operating like it's supposed to at that point, and some of the other parts of my carcass wasn't working right either. And so, uh, but finally I got to desiring one of those M&M peanuts. I said, let me have one of those. And I tossed one of those back in my throat, and I tossed it too far. It hung right at my windpipe. And I mean, I couldn't breathe in. I couldn't breathe out. It stuck. And I'm driving up that mountain. And trying to get that thing unstuck. And I can't breathe in to get enough air to cough it out. And I ain't got any air in there to make it come out. And I'm just stuck. And my wife, being the sweetheart she is, said, well, why don't you pull over on the road? No use of both of us getting killed. <laughs> she, she's, real, she's real sweet that way. She said, she said if you're going to die, no use wrecking and killing us both. And so I don't think she knew just how bad a shape I was in. Because I could not breathe. That's scary. Well, I pulled over on the shoulder of the road and let the traffic go on around. And I'm still trying to cough that thing out, but I can't get any air down. And finally it dawned on me, maybe I can try breathing through my nose. And I got just a little bit of air, not much. Because it's mostly plugged from breathing nose or mouth, either one. I got just a little tiny bit of air. And when I did, I coughed as hard as I could. And that peanut went out through the window. It must, if it hit one of those passing cars, it would have killed them dead for sure. And I got that thing loose. Man, it felt so good to breathe again. I wonder if maybe Jeroboam felt that way when his arm was stuck and he couldn't move. And the man of God prayed for him and it was restored to him again. It was restored to him. Now look what else it says. Jeroboam is having a, a sudden thankfulness attack. <laughs> and it says in uh, verse number 7, And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me and refresh thyself. That, this is the guy that he hated five minutes ago. Come home with me and refresh thyself and, and I will give thee a reward. Man, you got my arm fixed. I'm, I'm going to feed you and, uh, and we'll wash your feet and I'll even, I'll even pay you for what you did. <laughs> uh, this idolater is suddenly becoming a very kind fellow, isn't he? And uh, then in verse 8 it says, And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place, And then he says in verse 9, that's where he says, because the Lord told me, don't eat here, don't drink here, don't stay here, don't even go back the way you came, just get out of town. Now, if the story ended right here, wouldn't it be a success story? The man of God did just what he was supposed to do. He delivered the message. He refused the temptation to be rewarded and fed by the wicked king 
And he tells the king just like it is, you give me half of what you own, I don't want it, none of it. I'm leaving. I'm going a different way than I came in. If it ended right there, boy, we'd have a, a great success story. Unfortunately, it doesn't end right there. It goes on. But we see there the, the disobedience of the king. Just because somebody's got a, a lot of money, just because somebody's got a position of power, doesn't mean that they know what's best for you. And it doesn't mean that you're supposed to receive rewards from them so they can suck up to you. Yeah. Jeroboam was a bad dude. And, he, and the end, I'll tell you the end of the story. He still didn't get right with God. He went right on with his idolatry, just as wicked, if not more wicked than ever before. Now the third thing, the temptation and fall of the man of God. I said if the story ended right there, we'd be in good shape. <clears throat> this, this is where it gets said. Verse number 11. <clears throat> now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father. I wonder, wait a minute, I wonder why, why were those sons hanging out around that idol's altar anyway? And, and what's the old prophet doing still living up there where they're so wicked and evil, raising his kids there, and they're hanging out at the idol's altar? Why didn't they say something? If they believed on the Lord, why didn't they say something to the king uh, about his idolatrous altar? But they didn't. I think all of them were at, at backslidden at best. <laughs> at best? Yeah, at best. And their father said unto them, What way went he? For, the, for his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his Son, saddle me the ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon and, and went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. And then he said unto him, Come home with me and eat bread. Now he's going to do it. He told the king he wouldn't. But now, this old prophet asked him to come home. I, I wonder why he's hanging out under that oak tree anyway. We say, well, maybe he just got tired. But, but God said, don't hang around there. Don't eat, don't drink. And sometimes we get a little bit tired. Sometimes you get tired. You get tired of things being the way they were. You get tired of being broke. You get tired of praying and didn't see the prayer get answered. You get tired of going to church and, and somehow nothing miraculous happened. And you get tired of the job and think maybe I ought to just quit and get on the welfare. You just get tired. You get tired of serving God and don't get any real big recognition. Well, this man of God, it says he was a man of God. And he'd been in communication with God and he'd been doing the right thing. Let's see what happens here. Uh, the old prophet in verse 15 says, Come home with me and eat bread. Verse 16, And he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. Well, he said the right thing there, but let's read the next verse. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, Thou shalt not eat 
Thou shalt eat no bread, nor drink no water, nor turn again to, to go by the way thou, that thou camest. And he said unto him, this is the old prophet talking, and he said unto him, I am a prophet also as thou art. <laughs> Watch out. I know the Bible too. I communicate with God. In fact, I know things that you might not even know, young prophet. He says, I'm a prophet also as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. But he lied unto him. That means the old prophet knew he was lying. That means what he was telling him was against the word of God. The young prophet knew what he was supposed to do. Get into town, don't eat, don't drink, and get out. But now the old prophet said, well, I'm a prophet too. You ever have somebody give you advice? Say, well, I know the Bible. I read it all the time. I even read through it one time. (laughs) I used to go to church. I don't now because I know so much more than they do. But I'm a prophet too. In fact, I don't just talk to the Lord. I have angels talking to me. I don't know what kind of angel was talking to him if any angel did at all. It says he lied, so probably nothing. If he did have some spirit talking to him, it's probably one of Greg Locke's spirits. <laughs> An evil spirit. Now, whether this old prophet was really saved, the Bible doesn't say. Whether the old prophet had prophesied faithfully and in his younger years, and then he just got tired and quit. Whether he just decided to settle down, I live up here in uh, the northern kingdom, and you know nobody wants to hear the word of God anyway, so I'll just kind of blend in with them. Or maybe he wasn't saved at all, and it's kind of like Balaam. He claimed to have a word from the Lord every once in a while, and maybe the Lord even... I mean, the Lord, the Lord used a donkey in Balaam's case, didn't he? <laughs> if the Lord can use a donkey, he can use a backslidden Christian or even a lost person <laughs> to do his will, but not in a good way. So the old man begs this younger prophet to go back with him. He said, an angel told me to bring you back. Now, what's the problem here? It says he went with him. What's the problem here? The younger prophet already knew what the Lord had said. He knew what the word of the Lord said. And he let somebody talk him out of it. You know what happens with a lot of people in today's Christianity too? Some people started off well, they did run well, but then somebody bewitched them. And they begin to listen to the wrong people. Instead of listening to the Word of God and reading the Word of God, they begin to trust what some ideology promoted by some false professor or some moss backslider told them. And so they begin to take somebody else's Word against the clearly expressed Word of God. And that's what the younger prophet did here. This was his big blunder 
Sure, Jer Jeroboam blundered. Sure, he led a lot of people astray. He blundered. Probably lost as a goose. But this young prophet was a saved man. He'd been doing what the Lord wanted. He'd been following the Lord. And now he lets this old prophet, because maybe he respected the old man because he was old. Maybe he respected him and thought he was more authoritative because he spoke to an angel. Hey, let me remind you that, that there's places in the Bible that says even Satan can transform him, himself into an angel of light. Satan knows how to be an angel, but he's more of a demon. And just because Greg Locke's deliverance ministry and Benny Hinn's deliverance ministry and, and people who, are, who claim to be Baptists are moving over to a deliverance ministry, don't believe those lying spirits because they can take you and make you believe that they have a revelation from God that's far beyond what you already knew. You knew what the Bible said, but now they've convinced you that what they're saying is more accurate. And now they're winning people over to living for the temporal life instead of eternal life. Look, if I could heal everybody in here of whatever ailment you have by laying hands on you, I mean, that'd be a good thing, I guess. But do you know that's temporary? If I could pray for you to have a lot of money, that'd be a good thing, I think. <laughs> Not sure about that. But that's temporary. Paul said, I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And if we get sidetracked from the eternal things by focusing on what's right now, did you know your life is just a speck compared to eternity stretched out? We better be more concerned about the eternal things than we do for the moment. If I could heal you right now, you're still going to die. All of those people that got healed in the Bible, they still died. It's temporary. And so the eternal things carry... Lots more weight. Verse 19 says, So he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. Wrong, wrong, wrong. He knew what God said. Verse 20, And it came to pass as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet that brought him back, the old prophet. Now he's been a lying prophet already, but now God zeroes in on him and gives him a real message. Verse 21, he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, for as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord and hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back and hast eaten bread and drunk water in, this, in the place, of the which the Lord did say to thee, Eat no bread and drink no water. Thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulcher of thy fathers. What's he saying right there? He's saying the old prophet, the one that lied to the younger prophet and enticed him to come back, now the Lord has said, You brought him back, now he's going to die. You better tell him. And the old prophet said, uh, God just said, You're going to die. You're not even going to make it back to Judah. You're not going to be buried in that graveyard where your relatives are. 
your carcass is going to fall before you get there. Now, he didn't tell him how, but we're going to see that in just a little while. Verse 23, And it came to pass after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled for him the ass to, to, uh, to wit for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, he rode off on the donkey that belonged to the old prophet. He rides down the road a ways and in verse 24, And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him. And his carcass was cast in the way. And the ass stood by it and the lion also stood by the carcass. And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way and the lion standing by the carcass. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. So here's what happens. The, the younger prophet leaves the table and the old prophet said, well, the least I can do is give you my donkey and you, you ride him. You ain't going to get home, but you're welcome to the donkey. And so he rides away down the road and bam, a lion jumps out and kills him right on the spot. And we know this lion was sent by God. We know this is with a punishment of God because the lion didn't eat him and it didn't kill the donkey. It says the lion's standing there beside the body of the younger prophet. Standing there like a like a tombstone, like a memorial. Here lies the man of God that disobeyed. The donkey's standing there too, and the lion doesn't bother the donkey, and the lion doesn't eat the carcass of the man. That's how we know this was all of God. God didn't want the lion to eat him up, just kill him. So what do we learn from that? Well, there's several lessons. One of them might be that well-intentioned people, like the old prophet, I don't know whether he was just hungry for fellowship and he saw a chance maybe to fellowship with this younger preacher and invite him back for a meal even though he knew it was against the will of God. Maybe he was that hungry for fellowship. Maybe he just wanted to see if he could play with somebody but it ended up being bad. Lying never turns out good. Something else we learned there. The old prophet didn't suffer a judgment on him. God didn't have the lion to kill the old prophet. The lion didn't kill the sons. Jeroboam didn't die. I mean, out of the three, you'd think, doesn't it seem more fair if Jeroboam would have been the one to die? I mean, he's the one that's got the idolatrous altar. Lord, why didn't you just kill Jeroboam? He deserved it. Or the, the old prophet that lied, the young prophet was kind of doing right up there to the last. Why didn't you kill the old prophet? Neither one of them died. It seemed like the good guy died. We could almost accuse God of being unfair. But wait a minute. If God had not brought punishment upon the man of God that disobeyed, then why would Jeroboam think that, he could, that he'd be punished for his wrongdoing? You see, God holds his people more. To whom much is given, much is required. And people who know much are beaten with more stripes than those who don't know. 
the more of this that you know, the more responsible you are for doing right. You, you can dress immodestly, and if you're ignorant, maybe that won't mean as much punishment from God. But if you know what the Bible teaches, I think that being beaten with more stripes means just what it said. And there's no such thing. I think this is a myth buster too. There's no such thing as a little disobedience. Jeroboam was a big time sinner. The old prophet, I mean, he pulled a shenanigan and lied and led the young prophet astray. And so this young prophet, he seemed like he was the best guy out of the three of them. And he's the one that gets slain by the lion. There is no such thing as small sin. When we disobey... Hey, remember something called the Garden of Eden? And Eve just saw the fruit of the tree and decided to eat it? Adam did too. That seemed like a small thing. Yet the whole human race for thousands of years now suffered because of it. Small sin? Small disobedience? I don't think so. When we disobey God and know we're disobeying God, I think the price and the consequences have to be paid. The consequences of disobedience, far-reaching. It doesn't just hurt us, but it hurts others around us. Well, let's wrap it up. How do we apply these Old Testament lessons? It's extremely important, important that we do. I, I listened to a couple of messages on this chapter, sermons by a couple of guys I didn't even know. Never heard of them before. I don't even know their names. But I was, I was mowing today and I thought, well, I might as well listen to some messages and I'm going to be preaching on 1 Kings 13 tonight. I'll just pull up a couple of messages on YouTube and see what they got to say about it. And so I listened to two different messages. The first one I listened to, the guy seemed, boy, he's just right on target. I mean, he said a lot of the exact same stuff that I was intending to say. And listen to the second one. Man, straight down the line, he brought out lessons that I thought, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say. He's on target. But how you apply these lessons makes all the difference in the world. How you apply what you read from the Bible, it makes a difference. Because we got down to the end of the message by that second preacher. He said everything right all the way down through the message till he's application at the very end of the sermon. He said, all of this tells us that when somebody tells you you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven, don't believe them. (laughs) That's what men say. You must be baptized to go to heaven. I thought, man, he was straight down the road. I had a fellow that came to church here for years and years. He, He went and visited and joined every church in White County, I think. And and uh at one point, years after he left this church, he, he joined a Campbellite church. And when I talked to him, I said, uh, I said, Bill, you've got reverend in front of your name and you claim to be a Baptist preacher. What are you doing joining the Campbellite church? He said, oh, he said, Brother Brooks, he said, he said I, I, I've listened to them now for quite a while. And he said, they preach just like you do. He said, well, 95% of it, just like what you'd say. 
Ah, but that other 5%, that other 5%, that other 5% is the difference between a gospel that points you to heaven and a gospel that points you away from heaven. And if five, if you have a glass of milk and 95% of it is good, wholesome milk and you just put a little eyedropper full of strychnine in it, is that glass of milk still good? I mean, it's 95% good milk. Would you drink it? If the gospel is wrong, dear friend, nothing else matters. It's how you apply the message that we hear from the Old Testament, especially all the Bible, actually. But the Old Testament stories, I mean, you can have all the points right down the line till you get to the end. And if the gospel is not plain and straight, the rest of it really don't matter. There's churches all across America tonight and Sundays that will preach a 95% straight message, but then they'll tell you, how to get to heaven the wrong way. And I don't care how good their youth programs are. I don't care how educational it is. I don't care how good their facilities are, nor how eloquent their speaker is, nor how many influential citizens of society they have. If that church teaches a false gospel, none of it matters. Get out! I'd rather go to some little backwoods church where the preacher grammar is terrible, but he knows the gospel. Because if he doesn't know the gospel, nothing else he says matters anyway. What is the gospel? Believing that Jesus bled and died on the cross of Calvary in your place. That he rose again from the dead for your justification. That by putting your trust in him, what he did on the cross and his coming out of that tomb alive. That's the gospel. It's the gospel that saves. No other gospel can save. It's that one or nothing. It's that one and go to heaven, or it's everything else and go to hell. The gospel saves. Let's pray together. Father, I love you tonight, and thank you for the stories of the Bible that somehow there's places where it looks like they made some awful blunders and Yes, they did. But Lord, it's there for our edification, for our warning, for our instruction. And Lord, I pray that we'd not make the mistake of thinking that we can just redesign your instructions and make our own way, even if it's just 5%. Lord, help us never, ever to distrust what you've clearly said in the Word of God. That's the only word we have, Lord, that we can trust is the one that you wrote. This old King James Bible has kept a lot of people out of hell. And Lord, we pray that you'd just allow us to trust it until the day you take us home. Our heads are bowed.